This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. Welcome to the Madsplainers, a podcast from the Capital Times that makes sense of local issues. I'm local government reporter Abby Becker. Today we're here with Malia Jones. She is an assistant scientist at UW-Madison's Applied Population Laboratory, who has been watching the spread of the coronavirus. Malia, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, we appreciate you coming in. So I'd love to know what exactly is your job? What do you do and you know how and why have you been watching the spread of the coronavirus? My job is uh, I'm a social epidemiologist, and that means that I um, I study infectious disease and how it spreads through human populations. But I, I'm not a virologist. I study the spatial clustering patterns of people and how that leads to an outbreak scenarios. And in particular, I study people who don't want to vaccinate their kids and how they cluster in space. So I kind of work in an adjacent field. Um, I do study infectious diseases and, and how they spread in populations. And I don't really study coronaviruses. We, we, uh, we've had some outbreaks of coronaviruses before, but it's not my primary field of study. I was just watching this unfold on the news in Wuhan, China, and uh, as I started to notice it, uh, containment fail out of, out of China and spread to other parts of the globe. I looked at those epidemic curves, and I think anyone who's taken basic infectious disease epidemiology, epidemiology could look at those curves and say, hmm, I think there might be something going on here. So I, I um, wrote this email to my friends and family last Thursday, basically just what my thoughts were about coronavirus, what what might happen next based on my understanding of infectious diseases and my training as an epidemiologist. And uh, that message was very welcome in the world and went viral on Facebook first and then got picked up by national news. And so now I'm kind of uh, America's epidemiologist. I think the people who really study coronavirus are extremely busy right now. And so I am happy to be filling this role of uh, explaining some basic epidemiology yeah. to the public. Definitely. And that is hugely important right now as there are many you know, questions just about what this is. So, so I'm hoping you can walk us through you know, what we know and what we don't know so far about this virus and, and how it spreads. Mm-hmm. So it is a new virus uh, to people. Um, coronaviruses, it's a whole family of viruses and there are tons of them out there. They circulate in all kinds of animal and human populations. Um, And some of them don't even make people or animals sick. And this particular coronavirus, um, probably it's been a version of it. It's sort of genetic ancestor has been circulating in some animal population for a long time. It may or may not have even made those animals sick. But uh, like all viruses, it mutates periodically. And uh, what we think happened is that it, it had some mutation that made it very efficient at infecting humans for the first time. And it also seems to be really efficient at uh, causing really high viral loads or viral viral counts within the, the body pretty rapidly, and then also shedding. So that's all kind of preliminary information. This is all new in the last three and a half months or so, and scientists are scrambling to 
figure out what we can about the this new coronavirus. The virus itself is called SARS-CoV-2. And a lot of what we know in terms of public health response is actually coming from the SARS outbreak that we experienced. That's a genetically related virus. And so we've had a lot of useful information from that. Yeah, and you were you were mentioning that you know there there is a lot we don't know, but you had some insight into um, what is sort of unique, different about how this virus is spreading. Yeah, one of the things that I've am really heartened by I've never seen the scientific community respond so rapidly to a, a public health crisis. Um, you know, information, reliable research is coming out at an incredibly fast pace. And so that's, it's really heartening. We're learning a lot about it just one day to another. One of the things that has come out um, in the last couple of days is that it's it seems like maybe it's being spread around the world so quickly because people could be contagious before they experience symptoms. And even a lot of cases are probably very mild. And so you could just have like a rundown feeling or a runny nose and actually be shedding a lot of, of virus and infecting a lot of other people, which would explain the fast rate at which this epidemic is spreading. And that kind of uh, goes back to a key thing you were sharing on Twitter with, with people about this, which was to just stay home, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so a, a week ago, I was a lot more cautious because people in decision making, people who are in positions where they have to make decisions about canceling events and so forth, it's a tough balance to strike. You know, you don't want to overreact and shut down society and the economy and do potential harm for no reason. And a week ago, I was sort of like, well, um, this looks like it could turn into a thing. Let's keep an eye on it. I wouldn't book any new travel. Uh, but this week, it's really clear that we have a uh, serious public health problem. This outbreak is here in the United States. It's circulating in the community. And the solution to that really is these what's called social distancing measures. I find that term uh, kind of weirdly technical. And so I'm trying to say cocooning uh, instead. I think that's a little bit more approachable maybe and also a little more positive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So so this is the idea that we need to limit the spread of the disease by limiting people's contact with one another. One of the things we know we're pretty sure about for uh, COVID-19 is that it's spread by droplet transmission, uh, or which means that um, basically when people cough or sneeze, something flies out of their mouth or nose and uh, it kind of flies through the air in a trajectory and then it lands on a surface. And so if you're near someone coughing or sneezing, you might inhale those particles as they're flying through the air, but they don't hang around in the air for a long time. Some other viruses actually do that, and that makes them very easy to transmit. But this one, it seems like it's droplet transmission. Can those droplets last on clothing and on hard surfaces? They can. Um, we don't exactly know how long they last. There was a study that was released just a couple of days ago that suggested it's depending on the sur- what the surface is made of and the uh, humidity and temperature, it can be- last and stay uh, contagious. It can still infect people for between 2 and 72 hours. I'm curious, you know, what was the moment you decided to, you know, weigh in more publicly, you know, about this? You know, if there was a tipping moment for you to kind of take to Twitter and document yeah. you know, what you've been seeing, your concerns, advice. So I wrote that email it genuinely was for my friends and family. I sent it to about 50 people. 
And several people asked me if they could share it or post it on Facebook. And so I, I put it on Facebook and then made it public so people could share it. And um, a couple hours later, it had like 200 shares, which is more shares than I've ever had on anything I've posted on Facebook. <laughs> and I was sort of laughing about how, haha, 200 shares, I'm famous. And then, uh, you know, the next day, it was up to 5,000 shares. And then the next day, it was up to 20,000 shares. And so it became really clear that I had somehow addressed uh, a, a great sucking vacuum of information that was useful with that post. And the things I said in it are really basic public health hygiene strategies. You know, what we can do is uh, wash our hands and don't touch your face. Um, actually, I said don't pick your nose. And I've been joking a lot that I'm the person who told America not to pick its nose. <laughs> you know, sometimes America needs to be told these right? things. Yeah, I know. I know. I have kids. <laughs> <laughs> so you you definitely know. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Um Things like explaining why it is necessary to cancel your trip and cancel big group events, um, explaining what social distancing means and, and the fact that schools are going to be closed. We're going to be asked to cocoon. How much do we need to prepare for that? Um, yeah. And so I think that practical advice just really spoke to people when they were starting to feel very panicked. Definitely. And yeah, you were saying, you know, you, you wrote that for family and friends. You know, I was thinking about how academics often speak to other academics. And, you know, I'm curious, you know, what your response would be, you know, in this situation, right, where um, academics need to be talking to the public, the public needs this information, you know, how important is it that, you know, people like yourself with this knowledge and training, you know, are share- is sharing this information widely? I think it is really important. I've seen a lot of bad information going around. And I think that that can be harmful. Uh, and in addition, people need to know what they can do so they can feel like they have some control over the situation. Um, you know, I think that there is not a reason to panic because from seeing this unfold around the world, we know exactly what to do next. And what to do next is to implement blanket social distancing measures like closing schools, canceling large events, travel plans need to be canceled when they're not essential. Um, and we need to do that for about two weeks at a minimum in order to uh, two weeks is key because we think the disease has an incubation period of around – it's 1 to 14 days. So 14 days is the maximum that, that I've seen anywhere. If everybody stays home and doesn't – the people who are already infected don't give it to each other, don't give it to any new people for the two weeks, then we've put a real dent in the exponential growth rate of new cases and we can kind of get a handle on what we already have before we start – you know, retransmitting it through the population again. So obviously there's a lot of misinformation out there, and I think that we need to combat that information. And people also need to feel like like we know what to do, which helps to uh, tamp down on the panic. I think for me, you know, I did have a moment when I saw that I had a couple of thousand shares on something that I really intended for a much smaller audience, and it was full of swear words and um, – recommendations that I really didn't intend to be implemented nationwide, you know, (laughs) Um, I considered taking it down at that point. But I but then I thought, well, uh, there seems to be a real need for this and people want it. So I'm going to I'm going to put my inbox at risk and let it go as far as it uh, as it goes so that people have what seems like solid, basic information about the disease. 
Yeah, and information that, you know, you can read and easily understand, right? Yeah, I think actionable. that is people are craving that right now. Yeah. I'm in a little bit of a lot of academics have academics for parents as well. And uh, I think I'm in a little bit of a unique position because I was not raised by academics. And so I have been doing this kind of translational work over the dinner table all my life. <laughs> so maybe that's why I'm um, able to write in a conversational tone. The people I wrote that email for were, were not academics mm-hmm. for the most part. They were my dad and my stepmom and my uh, brother and sister-in-law. So truly just family. Yeah. 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 Um, so flattening the curve. We've seen this graph, right? Heard this phrase. What does this mean? Flattening the curve is a little bit of a technical way of saying that we need to slow it down. Right now, the outbreak of COVID-19 is moving extremely fast. And what epidemiologists and healthcare providers are worried about the most right now is that if we have too many cases who have acute respiratory failure and, and serious symptoms that need hospitalization and ventilators, if we have too many cases like that all at one time, we don't have the healthcare capacity to deal with that. And then doctors will be put in this horrible position of having to decide who gets a ventilator because there aren't enough of them, right? So if you think about if we're going to get just, say, a 1,000 cases that need hospitalization and uh, acute, you know, a lot of intervention, then if we have all of those in the next three weeks, we've got a real problem on our hands because we just don't have the capacity to deal with that. But if those same 1,000 cases happen over the next three months – that's okay. We can we can deal with that volume. And so flattening the curve really just means slowing it down. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, we've also heard that many, you know, younger people, people without underlying, you know, health conditions, you know, will be fine, most likely. Right. Um, and, you know, this person, you know, could have the virus, but then not experience any symptoms. If, right. if the person does contract the virus, then, um, again, the, the outcome might not be so severe. So in those situations, why is it still so important for people to to heed, you know, the advice that you're you're sharing? Yeah. So community cooperation is really critical here. And it has to involve people who are high risk because they are older or they have underlying medical conditions, and people who are low risk. And the reason for that is that even people who are low risk for having hospitalization or death from COVID-19 still can transmit it to other people. And so we, in order to get this flattening the curve or slowing down the epidemic, we really need everyone to participate. And that, that has to include well people and low risk people who are part of the transmission process. And it really especially includes children. COVID-19 is similar to the flu in terms of how it's transmitted. And we know a lot about the flu. And so we can learn from influenza studies that have been going on for decades about uh, what would really work to slow down the outbreak. And what we know from flu is that children are key vectors because they're more likely to infect each other just because of their behaviors. And they're also in group settings together in schools. And then they're going home to their families and infecting their families. And so I really do think it is necessary to close schools. Even though kids don't get particularly sick from COVID-19, they have much lower risk of a, of a serious case than older people, they're probably going to turn out to be one of the key vectors, which means they're the the sort of key part of the population that transmits it around. 
Definitely. I, I'm just curious as far as travel goes. Do, does that include like like dri- if you're driving like through other states, or are we just talking about flying? So it's all about contact patterns Mm -hmm. and how much contact you are coming into with other people and sort of the residue of other people. Mm -hmm. And that's why high volume events are a problem because everyone is this like a matrix Mm -hmm. algebra problem. Everyone is coming into contact with people from all over the the rest of the walks of life. And then you're in a small intermingling their snot. Yeah. And then going home mm-hmm. and giving it to their children and their grandparents, and right? So that's, that's why large events are problematic. So I find it useful to think about this as if you imagine a few people out there in the world are sneezing or coughing out uh, ink. And it's landing on stuff and it's sticky. And your goal is to, get it, to keep, it from, keep it from bringing it home and keep it from getting mm-hmm. it in your mouth. Right. But you can imagine like kids, they're always touching things and like touching each other. Mm-hmm. And that and that ink food. is getting all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you just ask them to wash their hands when they walk in the door, then they're fine again. Mm-hmm. Right. As long as they're not actually the mm-hmm. one sneezing out. ink. That's a good analogy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I know. I, I feel like I've been just hearing a lot of the travel advice, but then not. Spe- so but to then answer it's like, your it question, like it's always I would about ask, planes, you know. The problem with planes is that you've got a bunch of people, like, sharing a small, yeah. cramped space. In normal conditions, know, right? right? Um, and you're also in airports, touching all the same stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, it's a high-contact scenario. Mm-hmm. If you're in your car by yourself, that is not a high-contact scenario. Mm-hmm. You, But I wouldn't suggest anyone drive out of state to attend a concert. Right. That <laughs> defeats the whole entire purpose. <laughs> right. Right. If you're driving out of state to, uh, I don't know, visit a friend who's not contaminated, who has not been to a large event, yeah, or who's things. low risk themselves, that's fine. Yes, we don't need to like pause our entire social yeah interaction. We just need to, you know, be, be cautious smart. about the contact rates where we're going. Definitely, yeah. yeah. Like here, I've been here before, so I know that you don't have a staff of hundreds and mm-hmm. zillions of people mm-hmm. in and out of here every single day, right? It's fairly limited, and everybody yes. here is an adult. So Thanks I would have just said I can do right. that by phone <laughs> if. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. right. So I filmed on Dr. Phil on Tuesday. Yeah, I, yeah. And they begged me to fly in. Really? No. How hypocritical would I be? Exactly. To do That's this, exactly Dr. what Phil? I said. I was like, no. A uh, hard no. I'm not flying. To Did they double down? A hotspot. Yeah. They were like, I mean, we would, you can fly first class. If you need to bring a child with you, you'll, we'll give you childcare. We'll put you in a really nice hotel. You'll have hair and makeup. I was like, no. <laughs> I, the whole point. What people responded to in my message was its authenticity. And if I fly to Los Angeles, which is a hotspot, to tell people that I really think it's necessary to limit non-essential travel on Dr. Just travel there from Wisconsin <laughs> across the country? No, I can Skype in. It's fine. So. I, I can't get over that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. So who is leading on this issue? Well, in the state of Wisconsin, and 
a lot of other states, we're seeing leadership at this point come from the state government. Uh, the governor's office in the state of Wisconsin has declared a state of emergency, and many other states have also done that. In a couple of states, we have seen state-level school closures and instructions to limit, you know, cancel large events, um, limit travel to essential travel only, and um, also, you know, practice social distancing on a really widespread level. And I think that is the right direction to go in. These things are easier to achieve when we get instructions from at the institutional and, and government level. And so I really hope over the next few days as this continues to ramp up, which I do expect it to do, uh, that we'll see more instructions coming down from governments and institutions that we really need to be practicing these social distancing measures. From where we stand right now, I mean, is there an end in sight? Do you see the end of this, the other side? Yeah, that's probably the most common question I'm getting at this point, especially as people are freaking out about what's happening with the economy. And and I that is a legitimate concern. I, I The economy is also a serious public health issue. And so I'm also really concerned about that. If we can come together and cooperate and participate in this cocooning idea for a couple of weeks, then I think we'll start to see case counts go down in a few weeks. Um, we have seen that happen in other countries. And, you know, in places like Taiwan has, has what we would consider draconian practices in place to implement social distancing, but they have worked. And they have had almost no cases in spite of having tremendous population density and tremendous interface with other countries that are that are having big outbreaks. If we can't implement those cocooning measures in a timely and universal or almost universal way, we will probably see this drag on all summer. And I fear that the economy will be much worse off for it. So one of my key messages right now is I think the fastest path back to normalcy and economic recovery is pretty severe blanket, swift cocooning right now. What do you say to people who may express that they think the reaction to this is overhyped, is too extreme? Well, what I say is that I uh, respectfully don't agree. Public health really works best when we do a good job with prevention and if we do a good job with that, then this will end up all looking like we overhyped it. And I'll get a lot of people screaming at me that I cried wolf, and that would be terrific. But the reality is we have a brand new disease. There are 7.7 billion people in the world who are susceptible to it. Some estimates are saying that 60 or 70 percent of the population will ultimately get it. It has higher hospitalization rates and higher death rates than any other infectious disease that the United States faces on a regular basis. And if we let it spread uncontrolled uh, without slowing it down and taking these uh, flatten the curve measures right now, then we're going to see our healthcare system overwhelmed. And it, it could be really catastrophic. And so I think that it is not overblown. What we've seen unfold in other places is clear. And it's this is really something to be taken very seriously. I'll also say, though, that it's not the worst case scenario. This would be a lot worse if it was pandemic influenza or some other disease. So I think there are some silver linings here. And one of them is that 
we can use this as kind of a practice run for um, an even more serious pandemic. We really need to figure out how to manage this and manage it well. Um, pandemics are part of being a global society. And honestly, no one in public health is surprised that a pandemic happened. This is We've known something like this is coming since the 1918 Spanish influenza. Um, so, you know, preparedness is really important. And uh, I think we can learn from what happens in this outbreak and be more prepared for something even more serious down the line. You know, I, th- I think public health crises, you know, like the one we're seeing can tell us a lot about, you know, human nature and just people. Um, what do you think people should remember in this moment of sort of national anxiety? So one of the things, if you want to get really deep here. Let's do it. <laughs> I'm all in. Of, one of the things I've been giving a lot of thought to is individualism versus community mindedness. And especially with this toilet paper nonsense. Uh, why toilet paper of all the things? Why are people hoarding toilet paper like like we're not going to have toilet paper for five years? And I think what that stems from is a very individualistic mindset that is part of part of America. I mean, that's part of who we are as Americans is that we're we kind of think that we're every person for themselves and that we work hard and reap the benefits. Um, I. Public health by nature is a community project. And I think the more community-minded we can be during this pandemic, getting through it, the better off we will really be. And that means things like I've already said, everyone's cooperation with cocooning. But it also means things like, you know, help your neighbor out. If you see a Facebook post that, that someone's out of Clorox wipes or needs someone to walk their dog, I think we could go a long way towards community-mindedness just by lending a hand. And that also reminds me of another point that I should probably throw in here, which is that cocooning doesn't mean you're not allowed to see humans the end, right? You, It's okay to be in a small group of people who are practicing good hygiene. We need to cancel large events and community travel or and uh, travel to other states and high contact exposures like college campus, classrooms. We need to limit those things. But it's okay to have a meet, you know, to have your friend over for coffee one morning. Those kind of social contacts are great. And I would like to think of this as a time of kind of stepping back, um, stepping away from our lives a little bit and coming back into ourselves and evaluating what's really important in our communities. Well, thank you for sharing that perspective. Malia, it's been great to have you on the show. And I look forward to talking to you you more in the future. Yeah, I hope so. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Madsplainers. Got a question about a local issue? That's what we live for. Email us at abecker at madison.com. Your question could become a future Madsplainers episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to the Madsplainers on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you do your listening. You can also check out our other podcasts, including The Corner Table, which is all about food and dining in Madison, and Wedge Issues, which is our state politics podcast. We'll be back soon with more local explainers. Until then, thanks for listening and wash your hands. This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. 
Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.